Welcome to the Life and Soul podcast with me, Zoe Clark-Coates, where I talk to guests about their lives and the things that cracked open their souls on this crazy journey called life. This week, I welcome Maya Vander, who rose to global fame as part of the smash hit Netflix series, Selling Sunset. Maya is a powerhouse for the real estate world and today shares openly about her family, the tragic loss of her son Mason, who was still born in 2021, her miscarriages, and so much more. She even talks a little about selling Sunset for all of you fans. I'm also delighted to tell you that she's now one of our charity ambassadors at the Mariposa Trust, so you'll hear lots from her in coming months. So let's commence. So I am delighted to have you on my podcast to share your story. Um, but let's give a bit of background. So some people may not watch um, the show that you were one of the stars in, Selling Sunset. I'm a big fan of the program. Um, but give us a little background about your professional background and what led you to be on the TV and yeah. such a familiar face to so many people. So people always think, oh, it's all like auditions. We're all actresses. But no, I, I do real estate. I've been doing real estate for almost 10 years now. Um, when I first got my license, I was, you know, living in Los Angeles and got my license, joined one brokerage, a different brokerage, practiced real estate for about a year. Then I moved to a different company, practiced real estate for another year. And then um, I used to go door knock in the hills, meaning like your door, like you go, you canvas, you go door to door and yeah. ask people if they want to sell. And I used to see Jason's marketing material, right? At those people doors, like on the footstep, on the doorsteps. And I'm like, wow, how am I going to compete with this guy? Like his marketing is so sleek, so sharp. And uh, oddly enough, I uh, just opened an office down in Sunset Plaza and he asked me to join the company. Like we knew each other from, um, you know, the industry. And he's like, listen, I'm opening an office, me and my brother, why don't you join? So I decided to, to join because I love the fact that it's a boutique company and I was the first one to join. And, um, you know, the, the other girls joined really like shortly after me, Heather, uh, Christine, and then Mary got her license. So all of a, all of a sudden we're a group of like, you know, cute girls, I guess. And, um, Jason did a billboard and put the billboard right on Sunset Plaza, the Oppenheim group real estate. And the producer drove by and he's like, huh, that's an interesting, good looking, you know, crowd here. Um, you know, that could be a good TV show. So we approached Jason. Jason first declined because, you know, it's always a risk to do a reality show about your brokerage. Um, you never know how it's going to turn. And then the producer was consistent. And then they, they decided to film the demo. The demo um, got picked to a pilot and the pilot got picked to season one, Selling Sunset. Wow. And so I think the big question that everyone will must always want to ask you is, is it staged? Are all the conversations real and natural or is it set up by the producers? No, they are real. But here's what they do. Let's say there is a conflict um, between two girls. You know, something happened, a small conflict. Then the producer will totally milk that little conflict and they will have five other conversations and they will tell us, what do you think about that? What, what you know, what do you think about what she says. And then we, we've been honest and we talk about what, you know, the situation is, but they definitely milking one situation uh, and making it like bigger than what it is. But the drama is unfortunately real. Um, thankfully for me personally, I like the girls, I get along with them, but I do understand that we film a TV show. And if I don't ask the question or, Oh, why did she say that? Why should, 
then I'm not even going to be part of Selling Sunset. Um, you have to kind of like know what you're signing up for. You want to give good TV and you want to have those conversations. So yes, uh, it is real, but definitely they make it bigger than... Yeah, than it normally would be. How often do you say something and then go, oh my goodness, I should have never said that? Um, sometimes. Because you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, you're in the mercy of editing and you don't yeah. know how they're going to portray you. Thankfully, my character, as you call it, it's kind of like really me being me. I'm very straight shooter and I manage to have some of those crazy, I mean, sarcastic comments uh, without trying to offend someone, but then it might come across like I'm saying something out of line. Um, so thankfully the production was kind with me, but you know, if you look at other people like Davina, you know, it's, you, you got to understand that it, it is a TV show and you sign up and it's a, it's a risk. It's a risk. Absolutely. Cause if the public suddenly turn on you, you could be the enemy of certainly in social media and that can be really ugly, can't it? With trolling oh and, and with everything. It's terrible. You know, I thankfully got um, mostly love, but I got hate too. People, you know, send comments and I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Reddit. I try to stay away from those platforms. Um, and unfortunately, that's the thing. You are on a TV show and that, you know, people watch globally and it was a very successful hit. Um, probably because, you know, people stayed home and they were bored and, you know, COVID and it's like they just want something light and selling sense was that right there. And people love the show, but it comes with the territory. Yeah. So let's move on to the reason we're here today to discuss um, you becoming a mum and your journey through motherhood. Um, did you always want to be a mum? Was that something that you'd always thought would be part of your future? No, actually. I was, uh, you know, a young girl in LA, having a great life, you know, going out and you know, just doing, doing me, you know, and it wasn't like my dream, you know, a lot of women, that's their dream, like to become a mom since they're 20, like that's all they want to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to eventually get married and have a family. Like it wasn't that I was like, oh, I don't want to have children. Like I always want to have children, but it wasn't like my priority. And then I met my husband and, you know, we got engaged, we got married, we have, we had good times, but we were also like 30, six and my husband was like 38. Okay. So I go, okay, like, you know, the clock is ticking, unfortunately. Um, let's try to get pregnant. And we did. And I had two miscarriages back to back before my son, like at six, seven weeks. So natural pregnant, natural miscarriage. Um, I had a cyst on my ovary. So I took care of that. And then after the surgery, a month later, I tried again and I got pregnant with my son, Aiden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Aiden turned almost five months, I tried again because I didn't know if, you know, if you have a miscarriage, you know how it is. It takes time for your body. You don't know if you're pregnant. And if you miscarry, you have to wait at least two cycles. So it's like a, a delay of three months, um, at least. And, you know, at this point, I'm like 37, 38. So we tried again with Elle uh, and I got pregnant. And then, then I'm like, okay, I have a boy and a girl. I'm happy. I'm good. Like, but then, you know, I was like nine months later, I'm like, should we do it? Should we not? Because I'm like, I want to have a big family. I think long-term it's going to be great. So we tried with my son, Mason, which unfortunately that's the son that we lost to stillbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's like when you lose and you know how it is, people tell you, oh, that, don't worry, you get pregnant again. You know, you're so fertile. It's just, you have other kids, but it doesn't change and, and replace the void. And to your point, as a grief, you know, I know you did grief therapy, 
you think you once you have that rainbow baby you're gonna be good but then you're like oh i could have been you know i could have had like another baby or whatever two babies and so that pain never goes away absolutely it just journeys with you let's go back a little and talk about your miscarriages because when I watched Selling Sunset, I was really impressed that the producers were brave enough to include that within the show and that you were really brave to open up about that on the platform, not knowing how it will be edited or interpreted on the show. What made you choose to be so open about going through that when actually it's historically been a very taboo subject that people have avoided, but you didn't feel like that. You wanted to share about it. Tell me why. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's 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 so common. And probably most of my girls, uh, my girlfriend had a miscarriage at some point. And we started filming Selling Sunset. And that was after um, the surgery that I had with my sis. And I'm like, I'm just going to share my story and whatever happens, happens. And also when I found out I was pregnant on Selling Sunset, um, I was very early. And there was there could be a big chance that I would have a miscarriage again. And I decided to share it because I'm like, you know what? If it's a good ending with the baby, great. If I have another miscarriage, then it's part of life. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't, you know, I'm a very open person. Like I'm very honest. Like I don't try to shy away from things so for me it was just natural to share my personal experience and even after season one i had so many women messages me about their miscarriage and their pregnancy loss and then i gave them hope because i ended up having a baby after two miscarriages so they were you know hopeful that they can also get pregnant because i did after you know back-to-back miscarriage uh two miscarriages uh, and people forgot you know that they also had two pregnancy loss before my son so that's why when they laugh at me that, oh, my is always pr- pregnant, it's because, yes, because I don't know if I'm going to, I mean, you know, I literally at this point, three miscarriages and one stillbirth. It's it's a lot. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. How did it change pregnancy for you going forward after you'd gone through the miscarriages? Did it change your subsequent pregnancies? Yeah, you know, you're always paranoid, right? It's like, Oh, I'm feeling cramping. Oh, am I going to, like, every time, like, I used to go to the bathroom to pee, I'm like, I hope I'm not bleeding. I hope I'm not bleeding. It's just, like, paranoia. But then once I guess you, with me, and again, like, I passed the 12 weeks, tri- you know, first trimester, and they tell you, oh, that's when you can announce that you're pregnant. Um, and you, you then, then you think you're in the clear. You think you're good to go, right? 12 weeks, oh, everything is great. But then, you know, I had a friend who was pregnant at the same time that I was with my son, with Aiden, with the first son. And she lost her baby at 20 weeks because they couldn't find the kidneys or something. So she had to do a procedure and it was awful. And I'm like, holy, sh-, you know, like, holy, like, wow, like, still things can happen. But at this point, I'm not even thinking about stillbirth. Like, I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, it's bad luck. It's bad statistic. It's unfortunately, you know, with, with my case with stillbirth, it, I was in that bad statistic. Um, but then, so, you know, 12 weeks, I was fine. All the, you know, check up with Aiden were good. And then I kind of like relaxed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then when I delivered Aiden and everything was fine, when I got pregnant with Elle, I was like, okay, great. I already had a baby. Like my body knows what to do. No thing, no uh, reason to worry. And even with Mason, with my son, like um, the one who I lost to stillbirth, all the checkups were perfect. Even by the way, the pathology report came and the baby was genetically, everything was perfect. It was just mm-hmm. a bad luck with the cord. And I never think that that can happen 
you know, the babies are safe in the womb and, you know, don't do induction. You know, they're going to be like when they come out, when they come out. It's not true. It's just not true. Yeah. So let's talk about your pregnancy with Mason, which is tragically the last loss you have had. The pregnancy, I know, um, was totally normal, that there was nothing abnormal showing you weren't at high risk um, of being needing to be extra monitored. They presumed everything was going to be okay, which obviously gave you a complete false reassurance that everything was okay. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, my two pregnancies, everything was, and, and Mason too, everything like checked, you know, all the boxes, perfect growth, perfect, you know, heartbeat, everything. Even few days leading to his death, I did feel less movement, but I'm like 38 weeks at this point and I'm thinking, okay, you know, he's too big, you know, uh, they move less because they tell you they move less because they have less room to move. Mm-hmm. And it was a Sunday, so I didn't, I didn't go to the ER. That was probably my mistake, unfortunately, which I still feel guilty about it. Um, I went to a private ultrasound place. I just wanted to reassure that there are heartbeats. Yeah. Because in my, in my mind, I'm like, I don't think about... I wanted to reassure that there are heartbeats and that the umbilical cord is not around the neck. That's all I know mm-hmm. that can cause baby to die in the womb. Like I didn't think there, are, there is such a thing called compression, maybe the placenta. I had no clue because I experienced good deliveries and, you know, I wasn't really aware of that. So I went to, to a private ultrasound. The heartbeat was perfectly fine. Um, the umbilical cord was around, you know, not, I mean, away from the neck. So I'm like, okay, perfect. Then he just move less because yes, he's, that's, you know, he's a big, you know, big baby getting ready to, to come out and less room to move. That's my thought. In between Sunday and Thursday, uh, I felt movements, but not as much. And I wish I knew better. I wish I could go to the uh, hospital, you know, hospitalized for one day, monitor the heartbeats and just more be aware of that. I just, honestly, I feel ignorance for not knowing, like not knowing better that something is, could be in distress, that the baby could be in distress. Yeah, well, I think no one is educated until they've actually been through it. Unless you're a doctor or work in this field, it's just not something you're educated on. You're told how to get pregnant. You're told um, about scans. Exactly. And the monitoring. But you're certainly not told, look for this, this and this. And these are the risks. And part of me understands that because you don't want to scare people unnecessarily. However, by not equipping people with this information, everybody is naive to it until the worst happens. And that's why we need to talk about it. It's why we need to bring awareness to this subject and not only to people who have gone through loss, because that's preaching to the converted. They already know it because they've experienced it. What we need to be doing is getting this message to the wider public to say, look, there is so much that can go wrong, but some of those things are preventable if you're aware of it. So it's certainly not something that anybody should feel guilt for because it's something we're not taught. And so it's a a tragic accident that may be avoidable in some circumstances, but it's certainly not our responsibility for not knowing what could or should have been done. Um, But that's very hard to live with, I know, when you just want your child back in your arms. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I think honestly, till this day, if I would go to the ER, get checked in the hospital, insist of being there for a couple of hours to monitor the baby, you know, just like a quick ultrasound, my baby would probably be still with me. I just had no clue about stillbirth. I heard it, you know, I heard that word in the past, but nobody talks about it. Nobody created awareness until it happened to you. 
And now I know. And now it's kind of like, okay, oops, now I know. Moving forward, if I want to get pregnant again, which I do in a way, because it's just like, I feel that huge void that I, I just can't let go. I wish I could just say, you know what? I have a boy and a girl. I'm not there yet. Maybe I'll get there. But I'm still in a position in my life that I still want to try. And, yeah. and uh, I wish I just knew. I wish I knew better. I wish I knew that, you know, decrease movement. I mean, they always tell you pay attention to your baby movement, but they don't. They don't tell you, look, this is reasons that can, they tell you like to avoid stillbirth, don't lay on your back. That's the only thing I read about it. And I always lay on my side. I never laid on my, my, my back with all my pregnancies. And now they say if the baby moves a lot, it's also maybe a sign of distress because they're trying to get, get away with some, to get out of something. So I'm like, okay, moving forward, if I'm going to be pregnant again, am I going to be paranoid with extra movement now? Because before I'm like, oh, if the baby moves a lot, he's a happy baby. It's great. That's a good sign so i don't know what's the solution is i go to ultrasound every week and monitor the placenta and monitor the umbilical cord that there is enough flow between the the two because that's a big they always look at the baby but the placenta is so important and the, the umbilical cord i mean that's the whole root of the baby and the life support so my baby lost oxygen and blood slowly over over a couple of days so slowly just the compression caused him to, to basically bleed to death, which is terrible to think. Mm -hmm. It's so tragic. And I'm just so sorry for your loss. And, you know, all of the information that you now know is so empowering for you going forwards, but it doesn't change the tragedy that you've gone through and your family have gone through. And um, I think just by you talking and sharing your story, hopefully it will help prevent many other deaths in the future. Indeed, it did already. You know, a woman did send me an email a couple of months ago. She, you know, she watched Selling Sunset. She heard my story. She was pregnant, advanced pregnancy, and she felt that her baby was moving less. And she went there and they told her, don't, don't, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And she said, no, no, I, 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 need you, I need you to deliver me. Like, I don't care, like, because of my story, actually. And then the baby, sure enough, had two knots around the cord. The doctor told her, thank God we deliver you because that could have ended differently. You're so lucky. And she thanked me for that. She's like, look, if it wasn't for your story, I would be more nonchalant about it because you trust the doctors and nobody wants to rush a woman to deliver her at like 37 weeks because there is other liability, especially in the U.S. when you deal with lawsuits, right? Because if you deliver the baby at 37 weeks, then the lungs might not be developed, then you nick you. And so there is also a lot of factors that I think um, they, don't, they don't rush to do it. And I get it. It's not the best thing, but sometimes it is because... If I deliver 37 weeks, I probably had a baby now. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because we trust those working in medicine. We trust the hierarchy of it almost, that if they say, it's all okay, go home, um, there's no need to worry, we instantly um, forget our instincts and forget that actually sometimes we have those instincts that something isn't right and we need to be really forceful and say actually no I've got a real sense something is wrong and actually be listened to and feel the power to be listened to and not feel that we're being made to feel stupid because we're constantly going back because something doesn't feel right we need to be empowered as women to keep doing that and say if something doesn't feel right it's okay to keep going back to your doctor and actually insist something be done yeah and I wish I wish I listened to because I had a bad feeling but I went and I saw that the heartbeats were perfectly normal they weren't even low for 
where it should be. So I'm like, okay, then I am probably paranoid, you know, instead of like saying, no, something is off. So to your point, yeah, listen to your instinct. If the baby moves less, it's not because he's big. It's all she's big. It's because something might be off and you got to go monitor, stay one night at the hospital, be monitored for, you know, how it changes. And if you're maybe advanced, honestly, maybe insist to get delivered. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I wish I knew better. Tell us about um, Mason's birth, because I think it's really common in these situations that we just think of the birth of a baby who sadly passed away as all traumatic. And of course it is traumatic, but there's also moments of beauty. It's still you seeing your son for the first time, holding your son for the first time. So do you feel able to share your birth story with us? Yeah, you know, I was so shocked that to find out there are no heartbeats and I knew I need to deliver the baby because there's only one way out. And I had two vaginal deliveries before. So I drove to the hospital. Um, my husband at the time had COVID, so he couldn't be with me. So I went by myself and I'm like, I told my husband, don't worry, I'm just going to take a picture of the baby. I'll just send it to you. Like I was very cold about it because I think my body just came to a, uh, to a shock, you know, like, like, let's just get it done. Um, yeah, you went into auto drive, survival mode. Basically, exactly, exactly. So I delivered Mason a few hours later. Uh, they induced me. Um, you know, I started having contractions and I just like, and by the way, they couldn't give me the epidural because, uh, they, I don't know, the anesthesiologist could not find the spot to give me the epidural on top of it. So I was feeling literally every, uh, every inch of pain I felt. I'm like, wow, this cannot be, I mean, this cannot be worse. My husband is not there, no epidural. I have to do vaginal delivery knowing the outcome is a sad one. Um, but because my body knew what to do, I had two deliveries before. I thankfully didn't have to push for hours. So it was a couple of middle of couple of hours and Mason was born in midnight. Um, and he looked like a perfect big baby. Like, you know, uh, we guys doing kilos. I, I think it was like three kilo and 3.4 kilo or something like that. Like a good size baby. It was a bit, you know, the skin was peeling already and it wasn't as the prettiest uh, look. Uh, they cleaned him a little bit. You know, we held him, my, they let my husband go at least to say goodbye. So thankfully my husband could spend one hour with him. Uh, I held him, you know, we, we, you know, we spent some time with him and then they asked me if I want to spend the night. I'm like, no, I just take him because I couldn't deal with it. I mean, I, you know, it was a couple of hours, um, and we did what we did, you know, took photos, say goodbye, kissed him. And then we had to see him again, more clean than actually very cute little baby look at the funeral home, which that was very traumatic. Um, I think because of my, the, the labor and all the stress and the emotional trauma, like I had a huge muscle spasm for weeks, like everything, I couldn't move my neck, my, my muscles, everything was terrible. Um, and, um, just take one day at a time and it's a trauma and you know the the burial the service i actually have to send the cemetery today an email i keep pushing it back away but i need to choose a stone in the jewish tradition we put the stone after one year um so i need to choose the stone what to write on the stone and that's just something i just don't want to deal with but i have to because you know i want to give him a proper um you know space in the cemetery we decided to bury him versus cremation um because we want to go to every place so we can sit there and cry and just, you know, um, deal with the loss. But yeah, it's, it's definitely traumatic. Life goes on, as you know. 
I have kids. Thank, thank God it wasn't my first child because I don't know in what stage I would be right now. But thankfully, I have two kids that really keep me busy. And, um, you know, my, uh, my work keeps me busy. And I saw a grief therapist for months. I, I was with a group therapy, um, talking about it all the time on social media and getting all these messages from other women. All of a sudden, I realized, you know, I'm not alone. And some women were in the hospital and this, it still happened to them. I heard about gynecologists, women, that's, that still happened to them, and they are gynecologists. So I think knowing not alone, I know it's, it sounds bad, misery-like companies, but, but knowing I'm not alone and I'm not that only ignorant woman who didn't realize that something might be off does help a little bit. But it sucks because it could have been eight months and, you know, every Christmas will be like, because well, Christmas was his due date and it's tough. I've, you know, most of the days are good. You know, I'm, I'm, I function, I, I'm, I'm staying busy, but then I have moments. Mm-hmm. And what, what do those moments look like? You know, I just said, it's like, wow, I could have been, you know, already like mother of three, be done with it. Like the baby, we send a, a topsy. I mean, the, we, we requested a topsy report. It came back that everything looks fine. Just a couple of blood spots on the placenta, which means slowly lost some blood somehow mm-hmm. you know it's how to to make sense to it I'm, i try to find mm-hmm. the reason but my therapist said sometimes there is no reason sometimes nothing makes sense and i think as humans we always want everything to make sense and part of that is so we feel in control if we can make it make sense we can almost prevent it happening again and so our sense of wanting to be in control means the fact that we want two plus two to equal four and if it doesn't then that sends our world into turmoil. And so constantly you're trying to make everything around you make sense. And um, that means you feel more in control rather than in this spinning out of control seat where you never know where it's going to end. And so it's completely natural to hope that an autopsy and post-mortem results will come back with answers that mean it can be prevented and makes it, um, there be a reason. But actually, for the majority of loss, there is no reason. It doesn't make sense. And those results do come back as inconclusive. And yeah. we have to live with the unknown. And that's so hard when there's no reason. And then I'm thinking maybe COVID, because all my family had COVID around the same time. Like Maybe it's COVID, maybe my immune system reacts, but I never got COVID. So I'm like, okay. Is it my immune system reacting, you know, and, and all these like, theor- theories that are running through my head. Um, but we did send a placenta to a placenta specialist. He's in Yale University here in the U.S. And all he studies is placenta. And he tells him a lot about what happened because the autopsy really tells us anything. Like, it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, everything looks good. I mean, baby looks fine. Perfect. Nothing genetic, nothing. And he, he concluded, he thinks that most likely the placenta was smaller so mm-hmm. a combination of small placenta plus umbilical cord that was slightly compressed over time. It's kind of like a balloon that just, I don't know, like my husband is explaining it better. But anyway, just basically freak accident, as I call it. Bad mm-hmm. luck. And one out of 200 in the US, I think that's a st- statistic for stillbirth. And I was that one. But then I read all these messages from women. I'm like, how come it's be only one out of 200? It doesn't make sense because all the women who messages me, it's more common, I feel like. I don't know. (laughs) 
Absolutely. It's so common. I think especially when you incorporate the miscarriage stats and then it being one in four um, babies that are tragically lost. And each one of those babies at whatever gestation it's lost at, whether it be really early in pregnancy, late in pregnancy or at birth or early years, they're all precious children. They're people's longed for babies. And um, it's not something that's really rare. It's something that's sadly, tragically, really common. And that's why we need to talk about it. One, to help people who are going through it so they don't feel alone, but also to raise awareness to hopefully mean people do know when to speak up and when to run to the hospital and when something might be wrong. Um, So it's amazing that you're willing to share your story. How did people rally around you? Did you feel well supported after loss? Oh, 100%. It actually shows me how people are so nice and kind. My house was filled with flowers. Uh, people send us food. I was like, wow. I'm like, people people get it. And, you know, because some people don't get it. Some people, could, you know, think, okay, she already has two kids. She lost a baby. They don't understand the trauma of delivering a baby, hold the baby, knowing the baby is dead, and then deal with funeral. This is just terrible, and we still bury the child. But people was, but but most people do get it, and they send us a lot of love. And by the way, that's include all my selling sunset um, cast and you know production. They were super supportive and helpful, um, and um, and all our friends, and I just had good good support, and my family, and my husband's parents. Uh, people were just very, very nice. That's beautiful. And um, and you know, my gyno, my, gyno my, my my doctors were very nice too. Because look, it doesn't happen to them. Like my gynecologist is super sweet. She'd been doing it for twenty years, and I'm a fifth case in twenty years of stillbirth. So it just shows you it's not as common, and it's trauma. It's like she mm-hmm. probably wonder like what happened. Like she doesn't. So for the doctors too, it's you know it's it's traumatic too. Um, but you know, it's been it's been already almost eight months, and time goes. And you know, it, I, I am I am at this point. Unfortunately, I had another missed miscarriage, which I never realized uh, can happen because my body was mm-hmm. thinking I'm still pregnant, and the baby stopped developing. Thankfully, I mean, I was nine weeks, but it, the baby was seven and a half weeks. But I just wish my body recognized it, you know, because we went to the first ultrasound. For my, you know, first uh, post-pregnancy after Mason, we go there and there is no heartbeat. So I'm like, oh gosh, here we go again. Same ultrasound room, same same technician, as you know. Yeah. Um, no heartbeat. It's just devastating. So yes. that was what, when it, that happened in around May. <laughs> no, June. Like two, two, yeah, three months ago. Wow. It's just layer on layer of trauma, isn't it? That the loss, then the procedures, the care, and then the recovery, all of which can add more trauma into already this gaping wound of pain and hurt. Do you think you'll want to try again? I know that um, you've mentioned the fact that your family still feels incomplete. And I think anybody who's gone through loss, you've made room in your family for these children. And because you've gone through loss, that doesn't erase that yearning and that space that you've created. You want it to be filled. We can't replace the children we've lost, but we still want to grow our families. And that's the real heartache, isn't it? The fact that you almost wish that 
going through it erase that yearning because the thought of trying again is so painful and so hard. And I, you know, the pregnancy test and the ovulation test and when am I going to ovulate and when I'm going to, you know, then I, I'm the person who tests for pregnancy a week before my period is even late and I see no line and I'm like, oh, I'm not pregnant. So yes, I do want to try again, but look, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, at some point I'm probably going to be like, you know what? I'm good. I'm done. But unfortunately, I wish I could just let go of that void. I wish I could just say, you know what? I have two beautiful children. I have my son who is, you know, I guess an angel, which it's also hard for me to to believe, you know, like I wish I was more religious again and believe about that. But I have that and then be okay with that. But I'm still, no, I, I want that third or that third baby. I want, and it's my fault, baby, really. But anyways, that's... um. Yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. I just longed for that yearning to vanish. I was like, if only I could just stop wanting another baby so I can end this torture of trying. Yeah. Um, and people often say it can feel like self-harm, you know, the fact that you're keeping on trying, knowing full well it might end in more pain. But actually the reward if it does end up with a baby in your arms, it's just, you're then like, it's so worth it because look at what I've got. But for many people, they don't end up with that baby in their arms. So it's always a, this balance of when is right to stop? When do you just carry on? And when do you just say enough? Um, let's stop here. But I know for me, I would have definitely liked to have carried on having more babies. If my body hadn't said no more, absolutely no more because there's, they just bring so much joy, don't they, children? And once you've got children in your home, you realize what a precious gift they are and how much more you want to add to that. Yeah, exactly. And and it's hard. Look, my son, my kids are three and two years old. It's a lot of work. It's nonstop, actually. And sometimes I'm like, ah. But that being said, I'm just thinking long term, you know, the holidays and they're all going to play with each other and have, you know, each other yeah. back. And so it's important for me. That being said, look, I am 40 and I don't know how much, um, I can get pregnant. I mean, I get pregnant fast, but obviously I had the stillbirth, I had the miscarriage. So at least I'm lucky I'm, I'm fertile. But in, in my age too, the eggs are not as good quality. So the risk of miscarriage increased, you know, I think to 40%. So it's a call in the dice and how much emotional energy I have for that. I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to try again, see how it goes. And we'll see after that, what do I decide? Hopefully it will stick. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I hope so. Have you got great doctors surrounding you now who are helping? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, you know, my guy and I'm going to keep the same doctor. They're great. Uh, obviously, like if I get pregnant again, I was also with a high risk doctor that, you know, they do all the anatomy scan and all those, yeah. uh, but they didn't monitor me every week, which I'm sure now they will. Cause it's kind of like now, okay, now when you have a dead baby, you're really high risk. So unfortunately mm-hmm. it comes on, um, my baby, you know, life. Um, so I'm just going to do that and hope for the best. Tell me about your partner. How did he cope through all of this? Often we don't talk about the partners and I'm really keen to say this is a whole family experience, a whole family loss and partners matter. We need to be talking about everybody who has been affected by it. He has been great. You know, he really did a good cry for weeks. Uh, he actually... Mm -hmm. He did his griefing first, uh, more than me, because I, I was still in a complete shock and I felt like mm-hmm. I need to keep it, keep it together. And I also had a couple of deals with real estate going on literally at the same time I had my stillbirth. And his clients are trying to be considerate. They still want, you know, to buy or whatever, do the transaction. 
So I pushed it away. That's why I think I had the muscle spasm, which shows me when you have trauma, you just have to really release and let go because your body does hold that stress. So my recommendation mm-hmm. is like, move your body, cry. Um, so in the funeral home, I really like let it, I, I cried a ton. And then that's when I feel like I released with my body because I, I was holding it like that. So my husband uh, did his griefing and then he went back to work after three weeks. Yeah, he, he took off. He took off. But I know a lot of guys, you know, from the women I talk to, the next day they go back to work because they just don't want to deal. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard, you know, it's how to grieve. It's how to be vulnerable and be sad and and know that something like that can just take a turn in your life. And for a while, me and him, we were, you know, walking around and I said it in a couple of interviews. I felt like I had a gray cloud above my head, head and I was like, how am I going to even have fun again and, you know, go out and enjoy life because it's shitty right now. And mm-hmm. uh, especially in Christmas, you know, the lights were on and I'm like, I just wanted the Christmas tree to be already out because that means like, okay, we are, you know, moving forward from Christmas after the stillbirth. Um, and I was worried I'm not going to be able to be happy again and enjoy life and enjoy, you know, go have a glass of wine with my friend in restaurants. And, and I learned that life is stronger than anything. And, mm-hmm. and, and you learn to live with, with your trauma and it doesn't go away. It will never it go. It doesn't, away. it doesn't go away. And I think that's the real misconception around grief. The fact that people think you're going to get over it. You're going to move on from it. But actually I always say it's just your grief muscles get stronger at carrying it. So initially it's overwhelming and the grief fills the room because it's so heavy and you have no strength to pick it up. But as you move forward, your grief muscles get stronger and stronger. And so it's not that the loss gets smaller. It's just that you get better at carrying it and better equipped at carrying it. So eventually you put it in your backpack and you carry on. That's very true. And I'm all about self-care and so honest mm-hmm. with people. Um, stay busy. I think working, you know, I elevate my Maya Vander group. I have three girls on my team. I do a lot of real estate in Miami. I try to do great marketing. So my my mind is really occupied with that. Maybe it's an escape from dealing with the grief, but it keeps me sane and it keeps me going. And I still hope, hoping for that rainbow baby. Um, mm-hmm. I really hope that I will have it. And again, if not, I'll be okay regardless, but I, I'm hoping I will have another baby because... Um, you know, I mean, I miss, I miss it. Like I miss my, my son. So as soon as yeah. I wish I had another son, cause then it will probably look like my husband and then it's like my Mason, but there is no replacement, right? Every baby has their own uh, place and, and memory. And, and that's something I'm, I'm, I'm learning to live with. Absolutely. Well, I hope you get that baby in your arms too. So let's end with what's your best piece of advice? What do you wish you'd known or what do you wish you'd been told? Definitely listen to your instinct. If you feel less movement or even if you feel a lot of movement, I don't care. Go to the hospital, let them monitor you for for a bit to check if there is any irregularity with the heartbeat of the baby. Maybe insist on another ultrasound. Um, but definitely movements. If you see, if you feel the decreased movements, something might be off. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a great tip. Trust your instincts. Don't give up. Just keep checking out. And it's really hard as a mum because often we're anxious anyway. And so we can write off those concerns about, am I just being paranoid? But actually, what's the worst going to happen if you do go and check up? The worst is going to happen is them saying, well, yeah, everything's okay. So actually, that's a great consequence, isn't it, of keeping on going. But actually, it could save your baby's life. Exactly, exactly. And now I know, unfortunately, but that's my mm-hmm. lesson and that's my advice to women. Really feel, be, be that paranoid one. I don't care mm-hmm. because something might be off. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm so glad to be working with you on trying to change the taboo. What we can all do together as all women who have gone through this tragedy is to say, let's make a difference for the next generation. And um, so when our children all have children, things are different. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's amazing to chat with you today and I'm excited about the work we can do with you in the future. Thank you so much to Maya for sharing her story so beautifully. For anybody affected by this podcast, please know support is available at saynggoodbye.org. Just head to the website and the team will be able to offer you as much or as little support as you need. So join me next time for my next guest who shares their heart and soul. Bye.